1: Forever Dog
0: Hey, I am Gabe Gonzalez and you are listening to another episode of the Queerty Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This is a weekly show from Queerty and Forever Dog where I will be covering news, politics, and pop culture impacting the LGBTQ community and I'll also invite a guest to come hang out a bit. We'll reflect on the week and uh, generally keep it cute no matter what the news throws at us (laughs) in the days we've just lived through. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about an interview with a trans athlete, which doesn't happen often enough given how much it seems conservatives love talking about this community. We'll also learn about one gospel singer who loves the new Lil Nas X video and why Lindsey Graham offered a long-winded explanation for something he's hiding in his house. And we'll also be talking to the author of the young adult romantic comedy novel, The Sky Blues, Robbie Couch. I'm very, very excited to have him on. He's an old friend. But first, we're going to talk about those headlines I just mentioned in a little segment I like to call Catcher Up. All right, our first story of the week. Mac Beggs, a trans man and former wrestler who made headlines in 2017, is finally speaking out about his experience. Beggs said he was inspired to speak up in opposition to a flood of proposed state laws that would ban transgender athletes from competing in school sports and others still that could limit trans kids access to health care like we recently saw pass in the Alabama state legislature. Beggs grew up in Texas where trans men are forced to compete in women's sports and his school denied a petition to let him play with other boys. He was 17 years old when his story made national news. Imagine just being in that kind of spotlight at that age period. Um, I can't imagine what he went through. And now at 22, he looks back on that time as a fairly dark period in his life. He told Yahoo News, I think we need to have resources in place for other trans kids who are in those positions. He calls the proposed laws being considered today disgusting and said sports should be an outlet for kids, not a place for adults to politicize the existence of queer, LGBT or non-binary people. If you're interested in more information on how to help combat anti-trans laws happening in so many states right now, you can follow folks like Chase Strangio with the ACLU or even former QWERTY podcast guests Raquel Willis and Shakina Nafak, who have been sharing similar resources and organizations that are aiding trans communities locally. Very uh, crucial resources in these times, especially. All right, let's move on to our second story of the week. I can't stop talking about this music video and neither can anybody else but it seems Lil Nas X remains unbothered over folks on the internet flipping out over his latest music video and song Fox News pundits definitely earned their paycheck um this week flipping out over the song Montero Call Me By Your Name and the governor of South Dakota even tried to fight with Lil Nas X over a shoe collab featuring satanic imagery because if anything should be taken literally it is obviously a story about sliding to hell on a pole and lap dancing for the devil no room for metaphor there absolutely not And Lil Nas X has expertly deflected all of this because it seems like he truly doesn't care about these bad faith critiques. In a tweet responding to the backlash from people on the so-called religious right, Lil Nas X wrote, I spent my entire teenage years hating myself because of the shit y'all preached would happen to me because I was gay. So I hope you are mad. Stay mad. In 2019, Lil Nas X said that coming out to his mom and dad was, quote, nerve wracking and that while it was a shock for his dad, it ultimately brought them closer together. Fun fact, Lil Nas X mentioned in an interview that his father uh, used to make gospel music. He's a gospel singer, and he tweeted uh, a little bit after the release of his music video a text from his dad that was fully supporting the release of the video, which I think is pretty lovely. That's great to hear. So at least one person engaging in religious communities or gospel music is in support. I'm sure there are many more. You know, it's always the folks who are the most bigoted that seem to be the loudest when things like this happen. All right, let's move on to our very last story of the week. I would file this under not unexpected, but deeply bizarre. Uh, Lindsey Graham says he keeps an AR-15 in his closet in case of a natural disaster. Uh, He went on Fox News to brag about how he owns an AR-15, which is a thing Republicans seem to do a lot after mass shootings, given that this is the same style of weapon used in the Pulse Nightclub massacre, Sandy Hook and the Parkland School killings, and the shooting at a supermarket in Colorado in March of this year. Uh, So Lindsey Graham obviously responded to this latest shooting by going on to Chris Wallace and telling him, quote, I own in AR-15. If there's a natural disaster in South Carolina where the cops can't protect my neighborhood, my house will be the last one that the gang will come to because I can defend myself, end quote. I just... I don't know how to respond to this. Like, what is this elaborate scenario that you need to invent to justify owning this gun? Why is your gun policy the elevator pitch for the purge? How much time do you spend thinking about this like end of days scenario? It's, I don't know, uh, again, not unexpected and uh, deeply discomforting to know that Republicans in this country craft gun legislation like they're about to be featured as an extra on The Walking Dead. So that's a a little insight into that backward-ass process. But now, thankfully, it's time to pivot to something a little more exciting. We are going to invite on today's guest, an author whose upcoming book, The Sky Blues, was recently named one of the 13 most anticipated upcoming young adult novels by The New York Times. You have seen his tweets. You may have seen him running away from birds if you live in L.A. And today... We are very lucky to have Robbie Couch on the Queerty podcast. Hey, Robbie, how you doing?
1: Hey, I'm doing so well. That was such a good introduction. My ego just like burst out of the bedroom. Thank you. Oh my god,
0: absolutely. You know, we gotta (laughs) gas folks up if we're having them come all the way out here to the digital (laughs) realm this right. podcast exists you know can i just say
1: i'm a little nervous because usually like 99 of the interviews that i've done for the sky blues because it's a ya book it's usually pretty g-rated i have a sense that like you know we might wander into some pg-13 <laughs> territory which i'm totally all about but it's just like i need to change gears in my head so Let's
0: hope this goes okay. <laughs> PG thirteen is like it's a good way to to put it, right? We're not like TV MA, you know what I mean, but we're like maybe the next one down. Yes. Okay. Yes, great. Exactly. I love that. We can we can go there, but we don't usually, right? We like to keep it a little a little light and breezy with a a little a little kick, just a little right. bit. <laughs> it's like PG fourteen. Maybe. Sure. Yes. Okay. I can live <laughs> with that. That's, maybe, maybe that's not the right cutoff, but we'll figure it out eventually. <laughs> anyway, how are you doing? Where are you uh, coming to us from right now?
1: I'm doing really well. I am in sunny Los Angeles. Um, it's not super sunny right now, but um, I yeah, I'm in LA. I just moved out here. I don't recommend moving across the country in the middle of a pandemic. I moved from <laughs> Chicago to LA uh, last May and very naively was thinking, okay, this will just be like a few weeks of being inside. You know, fast forward a year later, and I'm basically still inside. So I don't recommend moving across the country in the middle of a public health crisis. But <laughs> having said that, I the little bit of LA that I've gotten to experience has been wonderful. So yeah, all things considered, I'm doing pretty well.
0: Yeah, you got to shake things up every now and then, right? Take the leap. Maybe the timing isn't always great, but hopefully it'll pan out soon. Yes.
1: I want to see museums and go to restaurants and like actually experience it. But if you're like, if you're stuck in the pandemic, LA is pretty great. Like there's the beach, there's like the, you know, hiking. So it's a pretty good like outside city to live in. So I'm really lucky all things considered.
0: That's lovely. My little brother lives out there and, uh, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think he felt a lot safer because he could just get in a car and go places, Mm -hmm. which I guess is some Think I could also ostensibly do in New York, but I am one gay. So, you know, terrible driver on that front. That's, <laughs> no, that's a lie. I just let my uh, license lapse. But two, it's like, you know, New York is not a very core friendly. It's not the best way to get around. Right. We oh, really no. rely on public transit out here.
1: I don't think I was ever I mean, I was in, I, you know, sometimes in a cab or an Uber when I lived in New York, but I never drove a car in the few years that I lived in New York. And now I'm in my car constantly. It's like it's kind of sad. But I also remember not to like sidetrack the conversation, but I feel like I was actively trying to recruit you to LA at one point in, in your DMS. <laughs> and I don't know if there's an update on that, but you got to come out here.
0: <laughs> okay, well wild story, I was actually on the verge of signing a lease uh March of last year to move out to LA. Um at least for a little bit, you know, tried out for a few months and obviously did not do that. I'm kind of glad I did not sign that lease and commit to that move. So, we're here oh, we could in, have been out New here York.
1: at the same time.
0: I know. Imagine, right? Just like literally still unable to ever see each other in person, but absolutely in the same city. That's a great, yeah, it's a great spot to be in. Exactly. All right. So you've recently moved out to LA, but I imagine you have been working on the Sky Blues for much longer than that because it is coming out very, very soon. I want to know how this story came to be, how you made the decision to write this book for young adult readers. Was it the kind of thing where you came up with the story first and you were like, this is maybe best suited to be a young adult novel? Or were you like, I want to write a book, let me come up with something that works. Like I guess this is a very chicken and the egg question, but what was the process like for you?
1: No, yeah, it, it is sort of chicken and the egg. But I think looking back at it now, looking because I started writing writing it in 2016 and kind of coming up with the premise in 2016. Oh, wow. yeah. And I know it's been a while. It's been a minute. And I think I knew I wanted to write a book and at the same time watching the Trump then-candidate Trump kind of come to pee and all of the horror show that came with it was pretty pretty terrifying to witness and especially looking at small hometowns like the one that I'm from in the Rust Belt, the white working class Rust Belt, to see how Trump was really resonating in communities like that mm. was very troubling for me. So I think the first place that I went in terms of like, how can I tell a story that kind of in in some ways captures this moment is to center the perspective of a young marginalized person. So that's sort of where my headspace was at. I remember also doing a story for the media company that I had worked at. And I did a story the day after the election on a surge in calls to the Trevor Project and other LGBTQ youth suicide hotlines oh, wow. talking about this surge. And it was so alarming to me that it kind of just reiterated the fact that I wanted to, yeah, write a story that kind of centered a young marginalized person. Yeah, I kind, I kind of went from there. And of course, the, the Sky Blues is not explicitly political in the sense that it brings in any, you know, <laughs> political topics super directly, but it is political in the sense that you know, it's giving a voice to a young queer person in sort of an isolated, forgotten part of the country. And uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to shine a light on a person like Sky.
0: Yeah, totally. I definitely see that though. I, I think, you know, it's often as we're seeing right now with a lot of these uh, anti-trans laws that we were just talking about, queer and trans youth don't have the option of deciding whether or not their identity is going to be politicized. It is. And so mm-hmm. I think sometimes simply that act of representing that voice and that perspective can feel political, even though it is really just a person person living their life the way they want to live it and, and the way that that seems best for them. Uh, but I'm very interested. Talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and that how that kind of influenced the setting.
1: Yeah, totally. So I grew up, I'm going to do the annoying thing that people do for Michigan and show you on my hand where I grew up. I don't know if it, the <laughs> listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm holding on my hand yes. and pointing to about an hour and a half north of Detroit. So like the thumb-ish area of Michigan. (laughs) Anyways, yeah. So I grew up outside of Flint, Michigan in a small town. And Mm -hmm. um, it was very similar to the the sort of town that Sky Baker is from, even though he lives in a fictional town of Rockledge, Michigan, which is in northern Michigan. But it certainly informed the way that I built the community that Sky is uh, a part of. So overwhelmingly white conservative. Certainly you could find allies, but it was sometimes difficult as a young person to to feel like you're surrounded by people who are different than you. So even though Sky's story specifically is different than my own in terms of the specific instances that he had to go through and, and Sky is openly gay in the book. I wasn't out in high school. So there's certainly many, many differences in terms of our own experiences. But I certainly use my own experiences growing up in that area of the country in a town like I'm from Clio, Michigan, in a town like Clio to inform the world that Sky lives in. So there's certainly overlap in, in pretty big ways.
0: Does it in a way feel kind of like maybe cathartic or reclaiming some of those memories? Like I find myself in a lot of the comedy that I've been writing lately, kind of returning to the settings or like communities that I was surrounded by in my youth in a way that kind of, I don't know, sort of re repositions them in my mind, kind of, and turns trauma into maybe something to, to capitalize off of yeah. in like, my comedy. So like, I, I don't know, does it feel that way for you when you're kind of visiting these places and in the story of the sky blues or, or in any of your creative work, I guess? Oh,
1: for sure. Absolutely. And the way even even the title of the book, the sky blues is sort of how, ha- you know, it sort of has a double meaning in the sense that sky is in a, you know, blue <laughs> time of his life where he's feeling the blues. But also, if you read the book, you'll see that there's sort of a focus on the natural beauty of Michigan and like how gorgeous and blue the state is. So it's sort of this double-edged sword, I guess, of, of having really a lot of beauty and finding a lot of you know having a lot of great experiences growing up in a town like the one i had but also on the other end of that spectrum is a lot of the homophobia and racism and xenophobia that existed in a town like the one i grew up in so yeah i certainly get what you're talking about and it's i think especially interesting in 2020 like having still writing the book and going through all of that in the pandemic where i'm like stuck inside and thinking a lot about my own experience it's just been such an emotional year in general <laughs> that i think it's been to your point yes very cathartic to be kind of revisiting the that time in my life, and and dissecting my own experiences and letting them inform the character. It's been an experience for sure.
0: You also mentioned a bit earlier that you started writing this in 2016, kind of right before the election. But you know, I think that time kind of laid bare a lot of things, a lot of bigotry in this country that maybe people kind of felt okay glossing over because it felt like things were improving. Right. We actually both met while we were working like in digital media. We were writers, um, but sort of more in like the news digital journalism realm. And I remember I also left that. World around the same time, like started leaning more into comedy writing because you know there were a lot of conversations about editorial staff needing to look objective and whether or not going to protests was acceptable. Kind of like wanting to put this veneer of objectivity over this this realm that we were working in, and I think that conversation was happening in a lot of digital newsrooms and. For me, I just felt like comedy was a, a better place to be operating from to kind of criticize the world around me and maybe like turn a mirror on it. And I wonder if you felt the same way, kind of shifting very seriously into pursuing this book and working more in fiction rather than the digital media realm, I guess.
1: Yeah, no, that's a super interesting question. And I think absolutely. I think the thing that initially got me interested in writing when I was much younger was the idea of telling people stories and having stories be able to have an impact on the real world and and change hearts and minds as as cliche and like, you know, as stupid as it sounds. I think that really can happen and does happen. And the way to really move people is through powerful storytelling. And so yeah, to your point, I think I started out working for media companies and many of them were progressive, but Yes, there was kind of that that rustling over, like, okay, how do I fit into this, and where can I best use my skills and my passion to make a difference and to add to the conversation in meaningful ways? And that certainly led me away from the more like hard news like style of journalism. Not that I was ever, you know, like a super serious
0: reporter. Right. Neither of us went to like Columbia J, <laughs> J School. Right. We no. were making like Facebook videos and keeping the stories oh down to like a yeah a few graphs. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah. I mean, doing it. That's what was interesting. I was doing research. You know, calling versus confirming things, but it was for a format that felt very non, non journalistic with big air quotes, whatever, you know, that means, but it was Yeah, i yeah. sorry, not to cut you off. But yeah, no, it was no, a no, weird no, totally. time. It was a very strange hybrid kind of news uh, format that existed right. on the internet in that era. Yeah, there was certainly jobs that I had when I was, you know, I think I was 22.
1: I was I was very young. And I was like, wait, I'm doing this like I'm the person that's supposed to do it. Yeah. So I totally yeah. hear you on that. <laughs> yeah. So I think that kind of was like, in a way served as an off ramp to like doing more, writing more fiction and being a part of, and I think specifically in the YA space, there has been this pretty big expanse of stories being told certainly we can get a lot better, especially when it comes to BIPOC folks and other marginalized communities having a seat at the table and having their stories told. But there has been improvement in the YA space, which is super encouraging to know that not only can authors representing marginalized groups be able to write these books and have them published, but actually have them perform well and have people buying them and have the marketplace, you know, have a space for these sorts of stories. So I think to your point, yeah, I kind of felt like what I'm doing now is more aligned with who I am and really what I want to be doing in impact that I want to have
0: for sure. Cool. Awesome. Um, well, I think right now is a great time to take a very short break. And when we come back, I do want to ask you a little bit more about the YA space and sort of what drew you to that. And also bring up the Lil Nas X video, because I know you have some thoughts. I've seen I you do. on Twitter. So we're going to talk about both of those things. But right now we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Hello and welcome back. We are here at the Quirity Podcast with our guest today, author Robbie Couch. I am your host, Gabe Gonzalez, and we have got a few more questions for Robbie. Uh, whose book, The Sky Blues, is an upcoming young adult novel. And I want to talk about that kind of world. What maybe drew you to the world of YA for this specific story or, or kind of as an author?
1: Yeah, I think being a teenager is such a fascinating, interesting part of anyone's life, really, in many ways. You're going through changes. You're you're dealing with a lot of societal pressures. There's just so many people tugging you in different directions. And a lot of that struggle is internal, a lot of it's internal. So it's already such a contentious weird, awkward, magical moment <laughs> in a lot of people's lives, and then layered on top of that as a queer person, it's just that, or at least can be that much more complicated to be kind of figuring out who you are and what you're into and how you identify. And so, I knew I wanted to kind of center a young person's story, a teenager who was kind of grappling with all of these questions and, and kind of trying to figure out who they are. And I actually pretty intentionally didn't want it to be a coming out story necessarily. And I'm not anti. Coming out stories, some of my favorite stories have a coming out narrative involved, but I feel like sometimes it does feel like queer stories can be a little bit oversaturated with the coming out story. And so I wanted to kind of capture the moment in Sky Baker's life after he came out of the closet. He's a senior in high school. He just came out a few months before the story begins. And he's sort of wrestling with a lot of those awkward, contentious moments of kind of being an openly queer person. And what does that mean? Just moving through the world in a conservative town like the one he's from. So yeah, I thought YA was the perfect genre to kind of capture a story like Skye's.
0: Oh, well, that's lovely. Yeah. Did you come out in high school at all toward the end of it? You mentioned you were closeted and i honestly was as well it was kind of that thing where it's like a couple people knew Mm -hmm. yeah but you know what i mean like yes but i think the first time i ever told somebody i had like an elder gay that i encountered he was like a senior his name was eddie gutierrez he played jesus and jesus christ superstar he was incredible just voice of an angel but he was latino and he was gay and so i was like i think he just saw me staring at him a lot and was so sweet and just like drove me home after rehearsal once and like played the smiths for me and was just like Oh my God. I, I don't know, kind of like a lovely little role model. And I still didn't come out for a very long time. Did you have a moment like that where you kind of saw, recognized a kindred spirit, a kindred queer spirit in somebody at a young age early on?
1: Yeah. Oh my God. That's like so sweet. I didn't have like a fairy god father like you did. At some point. <laughs> yeah. But I do remember being really young, or I think I was like in middle school. And I sat and my family was going on some vacation and we're on an airplane. And there was like this super flamboyant off the wall, off the wall, like gay man who sat next to me on the plane. <laughs> yes. and I remember con- yeah. <laughs> and I remember connecting with him in a way that I had like literally never connected with anyone in my life. And it was before I even identified as gay, or I maybe had you know, some suspicions at that point, (laughs) but it was really cool to connect with someone in a way that I didn't even necessarily understand in the moment, but years later could look back at and be like, Oh, that was just a complete stranger. But I saw myself in him in in some weird way, but he is as much credit as I give him. He was not someone who like, you know, pushed me out of the closet, (laughs) but to answer your question, I, yeah, I came out freshman year of college. I kind of had like the quintessential, like move away from home yeah, freshman in, in college, like all these new experiences. Like this is my time and I wrote a letter to I wrote letters to come out to all the people in my life and I don't know I think it yeah I think it was just because I was so intimidated by the fact of like sitting down and actually having a heart to on, heart yeah. on a type of subject that I had never discussed with anyone before so the idea of like getting it all on paper was just much more comforting to me so I wrote a letter to my sister and she lived across the state like near Flint still and so we met I remember it was like a rainy day it was so dramatic uh it was like a rainy night. A stra- this is a novel
0: <laughs> unto itself. There's some just like old school, very literary sensibility to all this. Like I'm writing you a heartfelt letter. We're meeting in the rain. I love this. I mean, obviously this was probably a very traumatic and intense moment for you right. not to make light of it, but like, this is kind no. of this is very cinematic right now. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. It's, it's amazing to look back and laugh at it now, but at the time you're absolutely right. It was right. Like, you're like, traumatized yeah. crying in the car. So dramatic, but um, yeah, I met her this like dive bar in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, <laughs> off the expressway and I remember the very first thing she asked was like so who do you like who are you attracted to like who are you into and the very (laughs) first person I know and the very first person that came to mind was um oh my gosh now I'm blanking the actor Colin the hot Irish or Scottish actor yes thank you thank you (laughs) that was like my number one I just like went into it yeah and she's like, really? And like, we were able to talk about how hot he was, and it was like such a weird. I, it's just like when your reality just like flips upside down. Mm-hmm. It was definitely. Definitely that, and I remember we ordered calamari. My memory is just (laughs) weird like that.
0: Just Colin Firth and calamari. This is (laughs) one for the ages.
1: Yeah, this is yeah. That's the title of my new (laughs) YA coming out next year: Colin Firth and Calamari. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that is so funny. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to think of who I would have said in the moment. I don't know. Maybe Ricky Martin. That was an easy grab for me, but I just that is too funny to me. I don't know
1: why went. my brain was just like
0: Colin. Oh, gosh. And I, I kind of want to ask while we're talking about, you know, these these YA narratives, Um, I'm wondering if that was like a genre where you found inspiration in other stories. Like I know that when I'm writing scripts, I I kind of watch things in the genre that I'm writing, uh, not necessarily to copy, but sort of to see maybe how they structure stories. I kind of like, you know, it's like I, to me, the fastest way I learned screenwriting was to read a, a script, you know what I mean? You kind of have to see it at work. So I'm wondering if there are any young adult books that center on kind of, you know, romantic stories or identity that really felt uh, like they kind of paved the way for you or inspired you to think, wow, like there's there's room for narratives like this.
1: No, that's a really good question. I think when I was really young, the first and I guess this is more kids lit as opposed to YA, but I remember reading Auntie Mame. I don't know if you've ever read it or heard of it. It's become a play and a film. And it's like one of the it's came out in 1955. It's super yeah. old. And I feel like a, like I'm so like dated and out of it by bringing it up.
0: You're writing letters, reading <laughs> Auntie Mame. Like.
1: I should have been born in like 1850. <laughs> but yeah, I but that was the first. Yeah, that was the first book that I read that uh, even though there wasn't even anything explicitly queer in the in the near in the story itself, it still, it had a lot of like, kind of suggestive (laughs) queerness to it. And I remember really like being drawn to it. But beyond that, a lot of the the YA books that I really kind of got drawn to when I was younger, like *The Perks of Being a Wallflower*. I remember loving Me Earl and the Dying Girl*. I was a, I'm a big John Green fan, like *The Fault in Our Stars*. A lot of those stories, yeah. To your point, I I read them, I fell in love with them, and um, certainly like reread them as I was reading *The Sky Blues*, just to to kind of get into that space and to kind of be thinking about tailoring a story in a way that makes sense for the genre. But yeah, when I was younger, it was sort of sad. There just, there wasn't any queer themed YA that at least I had access to. I'm sure there were many queer writers who were trying to write, but because of all the barriers in place, yeah, there was nothing really mainstream that I had access to in my small town in Michigan. So it wasn't until the last few years, I remember reading Adam Silvera's book, More Happy Than Not, came out in, I think, 2015. And it was the first time that I read a YA book that featured a young gay kid from the Bronx. And I was like, wow, this is so cool that it's like a queer protagonist in a story, in a genre that I love. And that was one of the moments where I thought, hey, maybe I can actually write a queer themed story in this space. So that was pretty cool.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. You always, yeah, you have that moment that clicks, right? And you're like, okay, this is possible. Totally. You also, you got me thinking back to how we kind of like find, we make things kind of queer when we don't have anything. I remember I was at a private school in Florida and it was like, I was in the fourth or fifth grade and the class was given options for which books to read the options were holes or ella enchanted and all the boys picked holes except for me yes and i joined all the girls and we all read ella enchanted and i was like honestly this book slaps like you all are picking a lame <laughs> like you're just doing this because right. the shia LaBeouf movie is coming out like i'm having a great time with anna hathaway over here but it was wild because <laughs> exactly. it was it was a moment where everybody was like why is gabe joining the girls with ella enchanted and it was it was kind of like a queering of ella enchanted accidentally i was like that was my my yeah. I guess like gender defiance. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> I totally
1: hear that. You are speaking to me. I remember being obsessed with Trini, the Yellow Power Ranger, <gasps> yes and every other like every other guy was into like the Red Ranger and the Blue Ranger, and I was like, Trini's my girl. Like I had like the stuffed animal, like Yellow Ranger. I had. I think my parents had like a book where it was about the Yellow Ranger, but like they had my name printed into it, so it was like sp- like individual. Like I was obsessed with Trini, the Yellow Ranger. But yeah, I totally have like so many moments like that growing up now looking back where I was like, hmm, yeah, that was, that was, that was for me.
0: <laughs> that was for me. That was a mean yeah. moment. I love that. All right. And uh, I do have one more thing I did want to bring up. You tweeted shortly after this Little Nas X videos. Many, many queer folks did. It was a thrilling moment. But you had a take that I really enjoyed that went viral. I don't know if you remember which one I'm talking about with the Oprah meme. Oh, yeah. Talk to me a bit about the thought process behind... Maybe thinking about comedically calling out some of the hypocrisy among the religious right when it comes to queer folks kind of playing with images of deviance that have traditionally been thrust upon us. Right. Which I feel like is maybe behind this this tweet.
1: Totally. I mean, yeah, I think it's it's sort of ridiculous that the religious right will so often try to you know, essentially say we're going to hell or ban us to hell and have these very strict heteronormative guidelines that we should all be living our lives by. And then it's like the moment we like say, screw it and lean into it. You're going to like call us out and be upset by it. Like, come on. (laughs) I am obsessed with that video. I can't even tell you how many times I've rewatched that. I want to give Satan a laugh dance now. (laughs) I making it my mission to do so (laughs) but no totally i i think it's it's just it's ridiculous i came from a somewhat religious background myself and Mm -hmm. it was so badass to see him just sort of kind of like reclaiming that narrative and saying screw you this is this is who i am this is the life i want to live and not being limited by what other folks are you know the constraints that other folks are putting on him and the life that he can live i thought it was amazing
0: totally yeah and i just i love seeing an openly gay black artist kind of not care about assimilating to this kind of like let me please everybody pop star mentality. You know, I just I think it's fun to see these these moments of kind of artistic defiance in the mainstream.
1: That reminded me, I think it's also so cool because I think queers have had to kind of tiptoe around so many things to find mainstream acceptance, right? Like we have to act like the couple with the picket fence. We have to be this or that in order to find mainstream acceptance. I mean, that's why, you know, marriage equality, I mean, I'm all for marriage equality, but like the fact that we had to sanitize it so much mm-hmm. for it to really get straight people on board, I think is so indicative of like the queer rights struggle and to have little Nas X just be literally giving Satan the lap dance and kind of giving the finger to that whole mentality of having to be sanitized and fit into that mainstreaming of queer culture. i was just so dope and cool. So yes, I'll probably rewatch the video later too.
0: Yes, I, I truly could not have phrased it better. I love that, right? It's like this idea that like mirroring, I think, heteronormative traditions or gender roles or relationships is somehow the ticket to acceptance and assimilation, right, when the queer community obviously is a very large umbrella and includes a lot of different folks who express themselves differently and think about things differently than that. And yeah, I think making room to say that that is here and it's not going anywhere for the sake of quote unquote acceptances. It's a badass move. I'm just psyched that 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 is the narrative right now i am not letting myself fall down the fox news rabbit hole is what's (laughs) happening i I have no time left to react to them absolutely not yeah that's a good choice i'm ignoring them and megan mccain's hairstyles uh what's going on there i don't know oh god it's truly tragic
1: i want to see like an investigative report on on how what's what's going on with megan's hair because that's a little (laughs) getting out of control (laughs)
0: <laughs> I tweeted that it looks like she's in a Bumpets commercial. Do you remember those where it was like oh, four different hairstyles with one clip? It's oh, just my God.
1: like, it's How really, can I forget? it's so rough. Ugh. Megan's blocked me on Twitter. So I don't, I, mean, I don't same. know what she's, but I think she's blocked everyone on Twitter. Probably, so I'm, yeah. I'm a little out of the loop on all things Megan, but that hair, I wish I was more out of the loop on her hair, but.
0: I'm not. (laughs) I wish I could just censor her name every time it comes up in my brain. Gosh, Dan, I (laughs) fell down the hole again. All right. Before we let you go, Robbie, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you for coming on. But. Before I let you go, I do need to play a little game with you. And we have a couple of games in rotation right now. I may introduce one more. I like to play different games with different guests. You know, it keeps keeps us all on our toes. But today I am playing a game with you I like to call Let Me Get You Cancelled, in which we have our guest defend an unpopular or obviously incorrect opinion. And for your Let Me Get You Cancelled, I would like to hear this from you in, in roughly a minute. Tell us why the Bible is actually a seminal queer text. You know it better than than any, right? We're religious, former religious queers. So talk to me. Tell me why the Bible is actually a queer story. Oh, God. Okay, let me think about this. It's your Ella Enchanted right now. Yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. <laughs> it is because, okay, every time you walk into an evangelical church... In white America, you are going to see some sexy ass like imagery of Jesus. I remember being a young kid walking through my the church halls and being like, damn, he's, he's pretty gorgeous. Like the six pack, <laughs> you know, like the beard, the beautiful eyes. There's a level of homoeroticism, not only yeah. in Jesus's story, but like throughout the entire text of the Bible, that's like something's going on here. Like maybe it's not in print in the, in the actual Bible, but like mm-hmm. there was some stuff happening between Jesus and his, what's the word for them? Disciples. There we go.
0: Okay. So I like this. Reason number one, <laughs> sexy Jesus with abs and a lot of dudes. Okay. Totally. I'm going to lean
1: into sexy Jesus. Okay. I think that's room enough to <laughs> to to argue that the Bible is pretty freaking gay. I
0: Yeah, I think we need we absolutely need a, an illustrated version of the Bible that leans into sexy Jesus. But I'm, I'm tired of, you know, westernized white Jesus. Like, I want to see real, real sexy Jesus. You know what I mean? Give oh, me sure. the brown man from the Middle East that I know had beautiful eyelashes. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And a strong eyebrow and just a handsome jaw. Yeah. There's a reason he was hanging out with 13 bachelors, was it? How many? Mm-hmm. Was it Something 13? Like One of them betrayed him i forget how many it was before that (laughs) happened i am not the expert to be guiding our bible talk right now okay yeah truly my catholicism has failed me as well so don't (laughs) worry yeah no totally
1: agree with you totally hear you on that whenever one of these reports come out that are like from a i don't even know anthropological or whatever research we think that jesus actually looked like this and it's like some hot ass dude with like yeah like the big beard and like totally not white and i'm like that is that is definitely more my style yeah absolutely (laughs) like the sanitized white dude but But either way, queer
0: give me the bachelor roaming the desert with a sex worker and several single men. That's, oh that's gosh. the game. That's the gay idol we need, right? That's okay. how the Bible yeah. should have been pitched Truly. to me. Yes. As a teenager. Right? <laughs> that's the, that's the New Testament, essentially. I would still be going to church, yes. You know, throw in some fish sticks and a few bread loaves and you got yourself a story. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Robbie Couch, before any of uh, the crazy Fox News hosts come after us next, oh after <laughs> defiling their sacred text, I'm going to cut us off there, but that was a stirring defense of why the Bible is a seminal queer text. We could talk about that for hours, I'm sure. And before I let you go, I would like to know where can folks find you online? Please plug your socials and talk to us about when the Sky Blues is coming out and where folks can find it.
1: Yeah, totally. So you can find me on Twitter where I spend way too much time at Ravi underscore couch and also on Instagram at Ravi couch. And yeah, the book comes out on April 6th, Tuesday, April 6th. I am so excited overwhelmed nervous, all of the emotions and and under one roof. And yeah, if you check out my bio and Twitter, Instagram, there's a link to pre-order or order the book. So yeah, give me a follow and say hi.
0: Awesome. That is so exciting. I can't wait to read it. And thank you again for joining us today on the QWERTY podcast. And if you're listening, please make sure to support us. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review our show right now, wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you can get your QWERTY fix, read uh, more about the stories we discussed and other stories that are being Covered at queerty.com. Queerty has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. Queerty is hosted by me, Gabe Gonzalez, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered and edited by Shereen Lonnie yunez music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Silio, Brett Boehm, Alex Ramsey, Scott Gatz, John Halbach, Dan Tracer, and Melissa D. Mons. Forever
1: <laughs> Dog.